Outside there was a hill, and the hill was only one of many hills. And the hills were laced with dusty green ancient olive groves and stone walls spilling over with purple morning glory and vibrant bougainvillea and pomegranate trees heavy with fruit. Inside the house on the hill, children and grandchildren played, sang, and prepared food. Voices layered on voices, generations layered upon generations. These were the children and grandchildren of Gidon and Susan Cashman Lev. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. Episode 12, A Life Less Ordinary. Lebanon was only a few kilometers away, sharing the same scrubby Mediterranean landscape. Jerusalem was 90 minutes southeast, Damascus, three hours northeast. Susan's eldest, Gidon's second daughter, had organized a beautiful family gathering for the weekend in the northern part of Israel. Gidon lounged on a bed, resting for a few minutes. He was staring at the beamed ceiling overhead, wistfully, longingly. What are you thinking about, I asked. I suppose that whatever was on Gidon's mind, it would be sentimental, maybe even sad. How great the construction of this house is, he said. Look at those beams. The family weekend was in Kliel, an agro-ecological model settlement in northwestern Israel. Non-organic agriculture is forbidden, sustainable orchards are a must, developing the native plants of the region is key, and the homes have solar panels and generators, which hum at night, partially obscuring the yipping of jackals as they prowl for food. Khalil is within the Mate Asher Regional Council, so named after the tribe of Asher, said to have been allotted this land in antiquity, according to the Book of Joshua. Khalil is verdant in a scrubby Mediterranean way, but not particularly forested. Trees and forests are important in Israel. In fact, since it was founded in 1901, the Jewish National Fund has planted more than 185 million trees in 280 forests. Moshe Rivlin, the former world chairman of the JNF, said, quote, In most countries, people are born to forests, and forests are given to them by nature. But here, in this country, if you see a tree, it was planted by somebody. End quote. much of what is today Israel, of its pine and oak trees, to build railways for their empire. Israel was aforested. In the world of forestry, to reforest means to plant a forest where one had been before, whereas to aforest means to put a forest where there was nothing before. Big difference. The JNF afforestation, much loved both inside and outside Israel as a symbol of rebirth and renewal, was naturally controversial. The JNF was criticized for planting non-native trees, planting trees to obscure the remains of Arab villages, restricting Bedouin herding, and for over-reliance on highly flammable pine trees. I grew up in the Cascade Mountains of Northern California, among evergreen trees, conifers, tall and swooshy in the wind. The trees in Israel don't seem as tall, lonely, or blue-green as the ones I was used to. Douglas fir, ponderosa and sugar pine, and incense cedar. The trees in Israel are different. Wild, branching, climbing, 
hugging the soil for dear life. They have names that echo the region from antiquity. Aleppo pine, terebinth, Mount Tabor oak, cedar of Lebanon, tamarisk, cypress, olive, sycamore, fig, pomegranate, eucalyptus, acacia, almond, and date palm trees. Israel is indeed the land of milk and honey and very many trees and parks. The myrtle tree, or hadas in Hebrew, has special meaning in Israel. Prized in antiquity for its fragrant leaves, it was used in weddings and special ceremonies. It symbolizes peace, justice, and righteousness. So much so that Queen Esther of the Purim story's Hebrew name was Hadassah. The Purim story, which is thought to date back to something like the 4th century before the Common Era, is from the Megillah, or the Book of Esther, and tells of how the brave and righteous Queen Esther foils the evil Haman from his plan to massacre the Jews in ancient Persia under the rule of her husband, King Ahasuerus. Scholars believe that the Ahasuerus from this story might in fact be the historical Xerxes. Deciding to take a leap of faith and marry a woman whom he was very fond of but didn't know all that well was a completely Gidon thing to do. It was a very Susan thing to do as well, it seemed. It's the small things that remind Gidon so powerfully of Susan that he weeps from time to time. A book she loved. A picture in which she smiled radiantly, her hair pulled back with her oversized 1970s glasses on. A card she made. A funny story of something she did. Her journals. Her poetry. Born in Florida and raised in Brooklyn, Susan hailed from a liberal, progressive family. Her father was an engineer and a part-time, quite gifted artist. Her mother was a politically active homemaker. An emotionally complex and inquisitive woman, Susan was a lover of literature and had a bachelor's degree in American and English literature and a master's in English literature and American history. She had a rebellious streak. An anti-intellectual intellectual, Susan was a seeker who interrogated life, love, and meaning through her writing and conversation. She didn't do things in half measures. Although on paper they were so different, Susan and Guidon seemed beshared, fated. They had three things in common. Both were headstrong, both wanted a committed life partner, and both were game enough to take seriously the crazy idea of hitching up. For Guidon, a woman better suited for him would have been hard to find. Susan wrote, it's true that my heart is sometimes a forest, so dense it's fearful. Like the rainforest, an ecosystem so complex, so ferocious. There are meadows, though, and glades where friends come to play and rest. You need to be persistent and brave and want to believe love is here. Upon the news of the engagement, Susan's parents, Monty and Margie, drove their mini-minor car to Kibbutz Zikim for a family get-together. While sitting in the shade of an ancient olive tree, they quizzed Gidon about whether he really knew what he was getting into. They had met Gidon before, yes, but Monty and Margie were doing their due diligence. Susan was 27 years old, and they were eager for her to find happiness and a measure of security. Was Gidon really up to the task? Gidon was an enthusiastic bundle of energy— but he had some baggage, and so did Susan. 
Was Gidon the right person to be a good husband to their only daughter and a good father for their first grandchild? I could only imagine how Gidon reassured them with his cheerful optimism, bright blue eyes, and authentic sincerity. Gidon didn't do things in half measures either. The next day after my meeting with Monty and Margie, Susan and I decided to go to the sea, a 15-minute walk through the sand dunes. I carried Yanai most of the way on my shoulders. The sea and the seashore was empty and just beautiful. I used one of our blankets to make us a bit of shade. We stripped and into the blue sea we plunged. It was all so calm, warm as the Mediterranean usually is in the summer, and quiet. Amechaye, as the saying goes. Susan, who was a good swimmer and loved the waves, not like me, swam right out there, while Yanai and I stayed close to the seashore. Since there were hardly any waves, I started to teach him how to swim. It was just so wonderful and hopeful. Yanai built sandcastles while Sue and I talked and rested, both body and soul. The building of our relationship had begun in earnest. Susan and Gidon were married on Kibbutz Sikkim on April 21, 1972, in a civil ceremony on a green lawn overlooking the Mediterranean. The whole kibbutz was in attendance, and two of Susan's beloved aunts came from America. Susan wore a white wedding dress embroidered in the Yemenite style. There were singing and dancing, and, as with all good celebrations, an abundance of food. In Susan's journal, she wrote, quote, it is over seven months since I asked Gidon whether he would like to join our fortunes. And yet it is only in the last month that I feel we began to really be joined together in holy matrimony. Yet we committed ourselves at least semi-formally in April. We married before the kibbutz in April, neither of us knowing whether the essential thing would ever be possible between us. Yet, like some enormous happening, like some miracle, it has happened and is happening. Perhaps love was always between us and only needed some great shock like finding ourselves living day in and day out, together to emerge, to explode into a living connection of passion and tenderness between us. Yet there it is. I love this man who is my husband. End quote. In August 1972, while Guidon's cousin John and his wife Lily were visiting, Susan and Guidon stayed in the kibbutz guest house and lent their guests their home, as was the kibbutz tradition. Susan's inevitable birth pain started as they often so conveniently do, at 3 a.m. Borrowing his cousin's rental car, Gidon rushed Susan to Barzilai Hospital in Ashkelon. Fifteen hours later, he would find himself in the branches of a broad sycamore tree. The hospital was a single-floor hospital, in the center of which there was a lovely courtyard with a wonderful tree in the center. In the waiting room, friends from the kibbutz told me that if Susan gave birth after dark, I might be able to see it happening if I climbed up the tree. This I did do. As I left Margie and Monty, Susan's mother asked where I was going. I can't tell you, not far, don't worry. I climbed up on one of the branches of the tree in that wonderful courtyard and watched our baby being born. It was stupendous to say the least. I could see Susan, the midwife, nurse, and doctor all helping, 
and only wished I could be there too. As soon as I saw that the baby had arrived, I climbed down, ran to Monty and Margie, and told them we have a baby. Is it a boy or girl? they asked. I don't know yet, I said. Twenty minutes later, they showed us through a glass window a wonderful, beautiful baby girl. And everyone present called out, Mazal Tov! A little while later, we were allowed to see Susan, who was smiling, exhausted, but extremely happy. A new life, another beginning for all of us, had just begun. I told Yanai that he had a new sister, and in the morning we made it to the hospital, with Yanai asking a lot of questions. How big is she? What does she look like? What color hair does she have? Is she nice? And I just kept on telling him, you will see her shortly and know all the answers. Will I be able to hold her? Yes, of course. Just be gentle and careful, I replied. We entered the room where Susan was staying together with three other women that had just given birth. And there, in a little sort of basket right next to Sue, was this most beautiful little baby, all neat and smooth and just lovely. We all loved her from the moment she appeared. And Sue was overcome with joy and emotion. We kissed and hugged and Yanai too was really affectionate. So Yanai, Susan said, you see, she's so very small, but she will grow and you will be able to play with her. Her name is Hadassah. It was August 13th, 1972, when Hadassah Lee Lev was new to the world. She would grow up to be a tall, willowy architect with sea-green eyes and the most melodious laugh I have ever heard. I wish it were possible to sum up the next 41 years in Guidon's family life, of birthday parties, summer camp, karate and dance lessons, soccer practice, holidays, births, deaths, jobs, failures, successes, house moves, and all the other ordinary yet extraordinary things that make up most of our lives. Guidon wrote thousands and thousands of words detailing these four decades of his life. Naturally, what made perfect sense to Susan and Guidon at the time sounded hectic and confusing to me so many years later. There were six moves and three kids born during an 11-year period. There were jobs, opportunities, dirty diapers, camping trips, flat tires, laughter, and shouting. I tried to strike a balance with Guidon and describe the big picture with less granular detail. But to Guidon, all the details were necessary. All of them. But isn't that the challenge for all of us, to make sense of our narratives as they play out in the moment, and then to put them into context for someone else? I turned to what I imagine would be relatively accurate data. The True Adventures of Guidon and Susan Lev by the Numbers. Married, 41 years. Raised, 5 children. Resided, in 3 countries. 14,965 breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. 42 boxes of photos. 14 buckets of tears. 5,526 hours of laughter. Undisclosed number of bandages, splinters, and blisters. Glee 
gleefully, Guidon added some additional data, cracking himself up as he did. Thousands of moving boxes, one month-long camping trip with me and five kids across America, Asher was only two, one family trip across Europe, many empty bottles of the red wine Sue so loved. marriage in 1972 and the birth of Hadassah, Susan and Guidon took advantage of a job offer that Guidon had received from an English dairy equipment manufacturing company and moved to Wales in early 1973. With little Hadassah and Yanai in tow, Susan and Guidon were now expecting a third child, their first together. Over time, Susan and Guidon added three sons to their family, Shia, Alicia, and Asher, all born between 1974 and 1981. Each son was born in a different country, Wales, Israel, and Canada. Guidon and Susan were chasing jobs and experimenting with living closer to Guidon's increasingly lonely mother in Toronto, looking for opportunities and trying to make ends meet. Guidon grumbled at this summary. It left out the details of Shia's birth. Shia popped out of Susan in a breech birth that the doctors thought would be so difficult. I didn't even make it to the end of the hallway before they cried out, Mr. Lev, you have a son. So when Shia was born, he was all this black hair and crumpled face and looked just like my grandfather. Wow. Gidon told me that in 1974, Naomi came to England with Maya to visit. Gidon got to see his daughter and Naomi got to see Yanai. It was emotional but strained. The separated children and parents would not see each other in person again for another four years. After an 11-month job contract in Wales was up, Susan and Guidon decided to move to New York and then Canada to be closer to Guidon's mother. By then, Guidon's stepfather, Yus, was very ill, having had a stroke. In 1975, the couple and their children returned to Israel. Rather than returning to Kibbutz Zikim, Guidon and Susan decided to take advantage of generous government subsidies offered to young families willing to make their homes in the further reaches of Israel. But the hilly, rocky landscape, so different from the humid, coastal, central Israel, gave the couple doubts. This area was known, Guidon told me, as the Peripheria. Today, this Peripheria, which includes the large city of Nazareth, is an exemplar of coexistence in Israel. With a majority Arab-Israeli population, Nazareth and its half a dozen surrounding villages are considered the Arab capital of Israel. Gidon and Susan soon became part of one of the most diverse, integrated Arab and Jewish regions in the country. The family moved to Netzeret Elite, a Jewish enclave established in 1957, perched on the hills just above Nazareth, meant to offer young families affordable housing, good schools, and modern municipal services. Susan and Guidon lived and loved in Netzeret Elite for the next six years. Guidon crossed that part out. No, Guidon said, 40 years. Well, I'm counting from 1975 to 1981 before you went back to Canada for three years. Well, Guidon said, I'm counting from 1975 to 2016. But you were gone for a few years, I pointed out. That doesn't count, Guidon said.
In Israel during the 1970s and 1980s, things were anything but peaceful. The region was, as it perpetually seems to be, on the brink of war. It makes sense that living outside a Middle East on fire might be a good idea. Gidon and Susan had been abroad during both the 1973 Yom Kippur War and the First Lebanon War. During most of the time when the First Lebanese War was being fought, we were living in Canada. And one of the reasons we were in Canada was to put a bit of a distance between us and the troubles, at times painful and bloody. We needed a respite from all of that. The fact is, for a while, we were even thinking of giving it all up, sell our house in Israel and staying in Canada. Then, in 1981, while we were living in Toronto, Canada, Susan had given birth to our fifth child, a feisty little boy, Asher, and a new war broke out, called the First Lebanon War, or Peace for Galilee. For months there had been shootings and incursions by the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, across the border. And it became quite clear that the PLO had made Lebanon and Beirut its main base, with the help of Syria and others, stockpiling large amounts of arms and ammunitions not far from our very vulnerable border. So the reasons to do away with this very real threat were there. How it was carried out, how far to go, I don't think was very clear to anyone, not even to Begin, and he was the prime minister. In the end, Arafat and his men were totally surrounded, with Henry Kissinger brokering an agreement that helped create Hezbollah and allowed Arafat and his remaining fighters to leave Lebanon for Tripoli, Tunisia. The Israeli army retreated to our border and helped create the South Lebanese army right along our northern border, which more or less guaranteed quiet in the north for the next few years. Despite the unrest in Israel, the family returned for good in 1984. For a time, Susan taught English at a local high school, but her creative, innovative approach proved too exotic for the unruly students who did not share Susan's love of the English language. Bruised and disheartened from the experience, Susan devoted herself to full-time homemaking. Gidon tried his hand at so many things throughout his life that he printed his own booklet called My Working Life. On its cover, Gidon wears a cap and is taking a test sample of milk from a large glass container of milk in a dairy barn. Gidon wrote tellingly of his relationship with work and its role in his life. Work. In Russian, работа. In Hebrew, avoda. In Czech, Pratze, and finally, in German, Arbeit. During the war, the Germans wrote that on almost every concentration camp gate, very cynically, Arbeit macht frei, which it did not. In many cases, it brought the prisoners closer to death from sheer hard work, undernourishment, and the horrendous work conditions. In a way, it did make the people fry, if death can be thought of as being set free, and perhaps in a way it was, since the suffering was so great so that many a prisoner, male or female, preferred to die rather than go on. 
in a different time and place and in another context, there is a deeper and more significant meaning to that famous, or should I say infamous, quote that the Germans used. For me and the millions of others around the globe, work does and did give a person a certain amount of freedom and independence because it enables us to stay alive and choose how we want to live, where and even with whom. Yes, it is dependent on a thousand and one factors, but the base is there. It does give each one of us a certain amount of power and control over our life. For me personally, it always gave me a base from which I was able to organize my life and a feeling of controlling my destiny. That dear work ethic was a strong force in formulating my daily, weekly and monthly existence, at times to the detriment of my social, cultural and even personal life. As far back as my incarceration in Terezin, as a boy of eight, I worked cleaning the stalls of the German officers' horses. I enjoyed brushing and keeping the horses clean. It was frightening at times. Many of us boys were, from time to time, kicked or slapped if the officer was not satisfied with the work done. But I managed it. And survived. As I looked back at Gidon's life, I grew exhausted just thinking about what he had been through, over, around, and beyond. I couldn't seem to get to the bottom of what made this man tick. I wanted to know his secret, to apply it to my own life, which seemed so full of tall mountains and deep, dark valleys. How had Gidon been able to face so many challenges, setbacks, and difficult times, and yet maintain such an optimistic disposition? Then I remembered Hineni. Hineni is from the Hebrew Bible and was what Abraham said to God when he asked him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. It was what Moses said to God at the burning bush. Hineni means, here I am. And to me, a kind of proud showing up. I'm ready. I'm here. Count me in. For me, it is clear that Susan and Gidon lived hard, loved hard, and worked hard. They uprooted themselves several times and lived the whole adventure, good and bad, at full throttle. Susan had been an only child, and so had Gidon. Raising a family with Susan was and remains the single most satisfying, fulfilling, memorable part of Gidon's life. In Susan, Gidon had found a true life partner. She was beside him through it all. When Gidon was with Susan, he was home, and that's where he always wanted to be. I never got to meet Susan, but what I knew for sure was that she was the love of Gidon's life and that the family she and Gidon created together is an incredibly creative and expressive one. Gidon knew that Susan loved to write and wrote often, but he hadn't realized how prolific she had been or how gifted she was. 
Susan left behind boxes and boxes of poems, letters, and other journals. One of the first things he shared with me when I met him was a book of Susan's poems that Asher, Shia, and his wife Tamar lovingly put together after her death. I didn't know what to expect when I read it. Now my copy is filled with sticky notes and paper clips and dog ears to mark pages and poems that I particularly love. In one of Gidon's many photo albums, there is a series of pictures of Susan's adult children, each individually positioned under the purple jacaranda tree in the front yard of the home in Netzerat Elite that Hadassah had designed. Alicia, the photographer of the family, took the pictures. In the last picture, there is Susan, weak, in a wheelchair. Susan's death in 2012, after a year-long battle with lung cancer, marked the end of an era. She died at home, with Gidon and her children by her side. We buried Susan in the cemetery of Kibbutz Mishmara Emek, amongst trees and flowers everywhere. It was a very solemn and moving ceremony, mostly non-religious. We played some of Susan's beloved songs. We read some of her poetry. We tried as best as we could to connect to her soul. And of course, we cried. Then we went over to Yanai's and Daphna's home, had some tea and coffee, and just talked. Though we are not religious, we did decide to have the traditional shiva in our house in Atzratilit that we so loved. During the seven-day period of mourning, so many people came. All of our friends and our boys' friends, even past and present neighbors. It was really a heartwarming and nurturing time of reflection and expression of love and care for Susan and for all of us. And I came to appreciate this old Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva. I must admit I felt very lost and lonely. I had always thought, being the cancer man, that I would go first. And now, here I was, all by myself. Afterwards, when everyone had gone home and the days passed, I tried ever so slowly to get back to some sort of daily routine. I prepared meals for myself. I took my showers. I returned to driving a taxi four or five days a week and slowly started to deal with all the paperwork that one must cope with as a result of a death in the family. I arranged for a cleaning lady, went for my checkups, and kept in touch with all my offspring wherever they were. In this way, four or five months went by. I functioned, but I was sad and struggling. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Mock and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah Eliran for being the voice of young Gidon. 